Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, just head over to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. This week on TWIP, two interviews with photo industry movers and shakers, Mr. Martin Evening and Smug Mug's Chris Baldy McCaskill. It's Monday, December 17th, 2012, and this is TWIP. Welcome back to another episode of TWIP. In this episode, I'll be talking with not one, but two industry leaders, Mr. Martin Evening, prolific photographer and author, and the man single-handedly responsible for taking up several feet of space in my bookshelf with his amazingly detailed guides to Lightroom and Photoshop. Martin has explored every nook and cranny of those apps, and through his gift of teaching and writing, he shares his best practices with us. And second up, it's Chris Baldy McCaskill. He's the founder and president, or co-founder and president of Smug Mug. Chris discusses the backlash that came after their recent pricing change and the subsequent adjustment to that pricing. And Chris was surprisingly open about discussing the patent trolls, I call them vampires, that are currently attempting to feast on his beloved company. But first, let's dive right into that interview with Mr. Martin Evening. Okay, I am here with Mr. Martin Evening. He's a photographer and an author, and you may have heard of him because he's written some pretty important books in the photography community. One of them that I'm staring at right now is called the Adobe Photoshop Lightroom 4 book. It's the complete guide for photographers, and he's written a companion book on that. I, actually, I wouldn't even call it a companion book. It's a another book called the Adobe Photoshop CS6. Is it 6, right? Yes, that's the latest version. It's the Adobe Photoshop CS6 book for photographers as well. And both of these books, like I'm looking at the the Lightroom book, and it weighs in around 700 pages. So this is is the de facto guide to everything there is to know about Lightroom. Same thing on the Photoshop side. So Martin has agreed to come on and chat with us. You You know how we do it on TWIP, just to talk about his beginnings as a photographer. And then we'll just transition into some of the books and what he wrote and why he wrote them. And if we're lucky at the end, he'll throw in some tips that many of us may not have heard of about how to uh, get the most out of these tools. So, Martin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, yeah, no, this is this is great. It's, it's an honor. Now, you and I go back quite a ways, back to my Adobe days. Um, I think that's when, when we first met. Um, I think it was Lightroom... Two or three? I forget which um, one. I'm trying to remember now. I think it, might, it was either Lightroom, probably Lightroom 2, I think, yes. It, yeah. was, it was around around then, I think, yeah, when we first met it was, up. It was in that era, which feels like the, the Jurassic period right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things move so quickly, that's for sure. Absolutely. So, yeah, so we had a chance to chat and, you know, interact on the business level. Now we get a chance to talk on more of a uh, friend-to-friend level. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um Let's just kick it off with with you and your history and 
why why you are a photographer right now why you know a lot of people have different reasons for wanting to be a photographer what's yours um it was it, i think probably the same as for a lot of people it was one of those things where photography was a, a hobby of mine that i was really into i think right from the age of eight years old my, when my father used to um you know was chatting to me once you know picking me up from school telling me about how he used to process uh, negatives when he was living in africa and, and at that particular time he had to get up at the crack of dawn to uh to process his films because the you know the chemicals would start boiling away <laughs> if he did it any yeah. later and of course he <laughs> needed the dark and um and living where he was you know he, he was able to um you know process these negatives and make these contact prints you know some of which i've still got around uh now and um it all just all sounded fantastic all this sort of alchemy of developing and fixing pictures and seeing the results because they were there in the, in the scrapbooks and the albums to see so that got me fascinated and i started underneath the stairs with my own darkroom um and then gradually out of that sort of grew a really sort of serious hobby and then when the careers guidance officer come, came around to asking what we wanted to do i just said i want to be a photographer because um i knew i wasn't really that academic or i didn't think i was at that particular time and photography just seemed like a really nice fun thing to be doing and and, and so that's how i got started on that going to college and then eventually working as an assistant in london and the career sort of built up from there yeah, that's great. And I've seen a, a lot of your work, and I'm looking at one of your sites now that has a lot of your work posted there. Just some amazing images from uh, portraiture and fashion and that sort of thing. What what drove you into that area? Uh, well, I would say it was actually probably a bit of an accident. Um, it's one of those things where, you know, fate, you know, sort of directs you to take a particular course. And mm -hmm. sometimes you just need to go with it. When I was at college, I was probably more interested in the idea of, beco of becoming an advertising photographer, for sure. I was more, I saw myself working in a studio, although I'd been really into photographing landscape a lot when I was at college as well. But I was trying to think of a career and I, I wanted to be a commercial photographer. So I was actually looking around for full-time positions assisting still life photographers in London. And it just so happened I saw a fashion photographer who um, took me on trial and you know, said, look, I've got a job coming up in the new year. If you want to come along and work with me, then I'm setting up a new studio. And really he needed a, a dog's body, as we say over here, to actually do a lot of the work just helping to build a studio, you know, things like sanding a floor and mm. building partition walls and stuff like that, you know, which I was quite adept at doing. So I did a lot of kind of that sort of handiwork, but that led on to studio work once the studio was built and a whole lot of experience working with uh, fashion and hairstylists and stuff like that. And then I got really kind of hooked into it. I, I could see that, well, actually, I can see how this stuff works. Um, I like, you know, the whole sort of setup and the people I was working with. So that really sort of directed me in a way I never really sort of thought about before. And I'm pretty glad, glad it did because it's really given me a good career. I've enjoyed, you know, the career I've had so far, you know, working along those sort of lines. And it all sort of started from just a chance meeting all the way back, um, you know, in, in all those years ago. Now, Martin, let's talk a little bit about that, because as you were talking, I just had this vision of you in the studio, you know, the, the sort of the, the vision that a lot of photographers have of, of, of these high end fashion photographers in the studio. You're in London. Mm -hmm. You've got the assistants buzzing around. You've got the makeup artist and the stylist there. You have the client in the back room with a clipboard watching a display and you're in the front directing things and making it all happen. What is that like? I mean, what, what is it um, like to be that guy? I, I think it's a sort of a 
you, you sort of kind of get into that. Uh, well, you, it's a learning process. I mean, I think when you do it initially, when you're younger, I mean, most of us who, you know, started off doing fashion and beauty probably started quite young. I started about uh, 23 on my sort of solo career, and I don't think that was necessarily unusual. You know, still today you get people when they're quite young wanting to, to do it because it, it's, it's a young person's business. And um, there's a certain degree of panic, I think, in youngsters once they start like myself, once you start getting the big jobs, because then it suddenly becomes really serious with a lot of money involved. And I, and I think that you do get the um, kind of uh, what people might imagine, the sort of the archetypal fashion photographer kind of losing their cool and getting kind of very animated and over the top. And, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, there are a lot of people, you know, you, you kind of tend to flounder a bit in the early years because you're trying to keep that image of being cool and looking like you're in, like, like you're in control, like a swan that looks like they're gracefully swimming along, yet you're paddling away frantically under the, you know, under the surface, just trying to keep things together because yeah. there's so many things that can go wrong. And over the years, um, you can become more adept and more skilled at being able to take take on those shoots. That the stage I'm at at the moment, I, I you have to have a certain amount of kind of uh, adrenaline going. You know, every time you're doing a big shoot, and there's a lot of money at stake. But I think that it becomes more second nature. So. Um, you know, you know all the things that can go wrong. You, you have a radar that kind of senses when stuff may be going awry and how to kind of sort of keep that under control. And you want to be mainly focused on doing what the client wants you to do, which is to be creative and to come up with, you know, a good solution to the brief. And uh, I, I find it, it's hard work. I can kind of enjoy it. I don't really find it as um, sort of stressful or as I perhaps used to in the old days. It sort of seems more sort of kind of second nature. And so you can go with it and you get this great satisfaction at the end of the day of doing a job where the client's happy and you've executed the brief well and you've given them what they wanted. It's a, it's a real good buzz. And I think that as long as you're feeling that, then you know you're doing well because, you know, it's terrible to get to a stage where you become too complacent about the whole thing and take it all for, for granted. So I, I don't think any of that's been lost, you know, too much. It's, it's still um, a really nice job to be doing, you know, compared to all the things that you could have been, you know, mm-hmm. could have been doing, or even other types of, you know, commercial photography. So I, I, I look back and sort of think I've, I've been really damn lucky and uh, enjoyed every moment of it. Yeah. Now, when looking at your work here, there's flawless images of, of, of course, you know, you've, they've gone through your post processing and all that. But talk to me about that piece of it. When you're, when you've, when you've completed a shoot, you know, notwithstanding all the logistics and the planning and all that on the front end, but you've completed the shoot, you have the images. They're in Lightroom. You've literally written the book on Lightroom and Photoshop. So you you know your way around the apps. Do you actually do the post-processing on your images? Or when you're on a job of that level with a high Fortune 500 or 100 client, do you have your assistants take over and do the retouching and post-processing and all that? Well, I, I mean, when I'm working in a studio, I, I would use uh, Lightroom usually uh, to uh, shoot tethered or do, or do a card import, depending on which camera's shooting with. But, I mean, if I'm shooting with, say, a digital SLR like the Canon, I would shoot in tethered mode. And the beauty there is that you can... In Lightroom, you can set up um, camera presets, sorry, you can set up preset settings, develop presets where you can create a certain type of look, which might just be as simple as just getting the exposure and the white clipping and black clipping, you know, sorted out just so that the image that comes in is not just a flat raw, but like a nice punchy image that would appeal to the client. And then sometimes clients have got an end view in mind where they want a maybe slightly desaturated look, perhaps with a sort of slight hint of cross-processing coming in that you, you mentioned. And so you can tweak the settings a little bit to create a new developed preset that actually 
gives them kind of that final look. But of course, you're still shooting in raw mode, so that all the image information is still there. Mm-hmm. But it really works well with clients for them to actually sort of see the pictures coming through and uh, pretty much as they would like to see them in a finished look. Um, so, so, so that sort of is a real sort of bonus, and it doesn't take any longer to have the images processed and appear up that way on the uh, on, on the screen. And then, um, as in terms of what happens in the actual final post production, I, I like to do or, or do do all the retouching myself. But I, I still overall prefer not to sort of fill around too much. I mean, for sure, I mean, you know, if you look on the website, I mean, I do do cross processing looks and things like that. But I mean, I'm. In, in the work which I do in the studio as well as in, in the landscape work, I'm not really into sort of doing sort of tricksy sort of Photoshop stuff. And mm-hmm. and that's probably emphasized in my books as well because, you know, my books aren't really about the sort of kind of the clever tricks that you can do. They're more about looking at the viewpoint of a commercial photographer or maybe serious amateur and what they would like to do with their pictures, you know, if they're interested like me in doing sort of more sort of kind of straightforward photography, which is just tweaked and made to look nice in Photoshop or Lightroom, rather than getting into kind of, you know, the swapping overheads and, you know, kind of crazy sort of avant-garde sort of kind of stuff. I mean, I do do that sometimes, but that's not really my main interest. Now, how much time do you figure you spend per image? I know it is subjective and variable, but generally. Yeah, I pretty much work it out as 40 minutes, you know, usually. You know, if I'm sort of, you know, when you're sort of costing up, you know, for a job, you need to include retouching time as well. So, you know, usually a minimum of about sort of 40 minutes would be spent on an image. You know, sometimes it goes over, but I mean, I can then sort of carefully calculate how much of my time is billable. and, uh, And that usually works out pretty well. Then if clients want to do, any extras beyond that, you know, then I would allow extra for it. And if it's an advertising job, then probably I find about two to three hours. I would, you know, you know, so usually put billing in. So I would do an estimate for about sort of two to three hours work per image, knowing that it's slightly different because there with an advertising brief, there's usually more, um, you know, there's, there's more kind of back and forth on a particular job. And, usually working with art buyers, you know, they're pretty much okay with that as an initial sort of quotation and know that if they do start asking for more, then, you know, you can keep on sort of clocking up more hours, you know, as necessary. Yeah. Now, when you're, let's talk about gear a little bit or just workflow in general. When you're, when you're doing fashion, of course, it's different than you're doing, you know, when you're shooting other kinds or, or other genres of photography. But speaking specifically about your fashion work, what's in your bag when you're, when you go out to a shoot and you do one of these typical shots, like on the shots, uh, the headshots and three quarter shots I'm looking at on your site. What, what do you take with you and what lighting are you using? What is, what does it look like? Uh, well, the lighting I use will be almost, you know, it's kind of like whatever's you know there. I think with a, you know, the flash lighting, as somebody said, as long as it goes pop, you know, then it's okay. You know? <laughs> I so <love> um, <laughs> I use Dell and Cron quite a bit, but I use Profoto at the studio. Um, so I don't know if you have that in the US, but I mean, Profoto's lights are pretty, you know, pretty nice. But um, I, 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 I'm quite a fan of using the monoblocks because they're quite sort of easy and light to carry around. And mm-hmm. um, so I... And I don't need to use such high power. I tend not to want to go and sort of shoot a small f- the smallest f-stop, you know, necessarily. So um, for the fashion work, you know, usually the monoblocks can work really well. And then in terms of the camera, oh, sorry, then I also use sometimes just natural lighting. You know, it's quite nice to use that or to use uh, HMI lighting or maybe tungsten filter, tungsten lighting, balance that in with, the, you know, with the daylight. Mm. So I'm kind of interested in different sort of lighting sources. Um, but in terms of qu- equipment, I've mostly been using canon uh digital slrs so i'm still using the eos 1ds mark 3 at the moment i 
not been completely sold on the idea that the One DX is, you know, necessarily something I want to get. Um, if I was buying a fresh right now, I'd be probably quite tempted by the Nikon D800 or D800E. I think that's a pretty much a landmark camera, I think, in digital SLR technology right now. Yeah. Um, and then I've also used the Hasselblad sometimes, uh, the Hasselblad HD40 or 50. Um, and those have been pretty good, really good in the, in the studio, the quality you get from that. In fact, I think the book that you mentioned, the Lightroom 4 book, the cover shot of that was photographed using the using the Hasselblad HD4 yeah. uh, with the, I think, the 50 megapixel back, I think, on that, that occasion. And I've taken it on location as well. I've, I've borrowed one and out on location and, uh, and used that. I think still on balance, I'm still more a fan of the digital SLRs. I think that the quality that you can get from the very latest digital SLRs is pretty amazing, um, especially the Nikon one I mentioned. I mean, you know, you've got almost as many megapixels as the Hasselblad I just discussed. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as long as you're using good quality lenses, I mean, you know, you've got the versatility there of being able to shoot in the studio and with really good ISO performance, which I think generally for some of the uh, medium format bags, that's not necessarily the case. Better be careful because I think that some of them looking at the Dix or Optics website, which gives you a comparison of some of the cameras, I've seen some of the medium format cameras that are out now, they have actually got good ISO performance and high ISO settings. But generally, I found that the uh, digital SLRs are far more versatile. So, you know, you, you can use them for a lot more things than you can necessarily with a, with, with a, um, uh, a medium format camera. Yeah. Um, but then interestingly, uh, I've also just recently just got hold of a Sony uh, RX100 camera, one of these little, you know, digital, you know, compact system cameras. Yeah. And it's pretty inexpensive, um, but I've been amazed at the quality you get. It's about 20 megapixels, and, uh, you know, a lot of photographers have been reviewing them, saying it's like um, like a good alternative camera to shooting with a digital SLR. And so it's something you can easily carry in your pocket all the time. So I've only just started shooting with it, but what I've seen so far from the results I've got from the files is, is pretty amazing, shooting in raw mode, obviously. Now is, that a, is that a micro four-thirds camera? Is it full frame? What, what's, what's the sensor size? It's a one-inch sensor size. Okay. So um, it's kind of sort of somewhere in between there. Um, it's, you know, between that and, a, and a, you know, say uh, the, the small sen- smaller sensors that you get on the uh, small, um, you know, digital uh, compact cameras, sorry, digital SLR cameras. So it's, um, yeah, so it's a slightly bigger sensor than you get in some of the other compact system uh, cameras. So you can get a, you can already see in the pictures I've shot, you know, that you get a bit of depth of, focus in their effect, you know, where you get a sort of shallow focus shooting at the f1.8 uh, aperture. Um, um, the optics is really good looking at the center, not so great towards the edges of the frame, I don't think, but um, really, really impressed actually with the quality with that. So it's a nice alternative to, to shoot with when I, I don't want to carry around a big camera. But is it, is it that a camera that you would consider using on a commercial job? Um, it depends, I suppose. Not in a not in a studio shoot. No, mm-hmm. um, I, I think yeah. No, I wouldn't see myself sort of shooting sort of the fashion stuff with it. But I mean, if you're doing a portrait assignment, maybe sometimes it could be quite sort of handy to have for for some occasions. Um, I don't know. I'd have to sort of see. It's, you know, these cameras are a little bit slow to work with sometimes. You, you know, you, the beauty of using a digital SLR is you've got fast shooting capability. You can mm-hmm. quick shoot bursts of shots. So I'd probably find it a bit limiting, I think, for shooting the commercial stuff that I do. But certainly for any situation where you kind of regret not having a camera on you, you know, there's no excuse now. I can always carry this around with me in my pocket or in the bag. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Now, what about your iPhone? Or do, or do you have an iPhone? Or do you shoot? I with, do. Yes. Do you yeah. do you shoot with that at all? I do, and um, yeah, the pictures are what you pretty much expect. I mean, they're pretty right. good, aren't they? You know, but um, I, I, I'm always pretty disappointed in, in the results that come from an iPhone picture. I don't think. I think actually, in my book, there's a in one of my books. There's a series. Of, there's a picture I did of a beautiful uh, sunset. You know, with one of those fantastic sort of uh, semisphere, you know, complete uh, rainbows, mm-hmm. and uh, that was a stitch shot which I did shot from a bridge in London where we were just driving back from you know, from somewhere, and it just was this fantastic uh, rainbow. And I didn't have a camera with me, and I just had the iPhone, so I shot that. And it looked pretty nice by the time I stitched the shots together, and I used that in my book. And I think there's maybe one other picture I might have shot with the iPhone of my daughter that might have been in the book. But other than that, I mean, I've, you know, I've shot a lot of pictures with it, but I, there's nothing I've ever really considered that, have been, that would be good enough to, to use. Um, I'm not really got into Instagram and all that sort of kind of thing. I, I, I just... I sort of find that if I'm going to sort of take pictures, I, I would rather use a camera I feel that's going to be worth working with to, to get something good out. And I'd rather be kind of sort of like quite serious about the editing process to get down just to the pictures that I really want to show. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's nice that you can use it, but um, it's just really more for, for fun, I think. So, Martin, let's talk a little bit about your just sort of your movement in in the different genres of photography. So my exposure to you is when in your beauty and fashion work. And mm-hmm. and now through the the exchange of the emails that we did, you you were telling me that you're you're starting to do a lot more landscape. You want to ex- give me an idea of why you're moving in that direction? Um, I think it's probably partly a sort of career change that's taking uh, place. You know, I started writing books about Photoshop. Um, let me see, about '96, I think, was when I first started work on my first first book. So you know, I've been doing it for quite a while and using Photoshop for quite a while as well. So that. Um, you know that that at that particular time, I was more interested in Photoshop, obviously, for what I could do with it in my work in my work sphere. So I was using it to retouch my pictures and uh, you know and really becoming quite sort of experienced as a as a photo retoucher as a result of all that work. And then the the writing was like a side thing, which kind of took off. So by the time I think we met. I was probably really busy sort of shooting probably two or three days a week. You know, there was a, there was an intense schedule and I had to work really hard to kind of juggle around working with various assistants, helping me out on shoots and castings and stuff like that to fit all that in with writing the books, which usually took place in the evenings. And I, I was burning, getting pretty burnt out at times, you know, doing all that sort of work. But then it was a really good thing because, you know, working as a photographer, as a commercial photographer, and then writing the books, you know, I had the viewpoint of somebody who was doing this stuff really for a living rather than, you know, coming at it as somebody who was a writer first who happened to take good pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, and then more recently, you know, with the, you know, partly to do with the economy, I suppose, there's less, you know, there's been less commissions coming through, partly because I am getting older. Um, and I think mainly because, of all that, you know, I, I really wanted to concentrate on the books. The books have become bigger and bigger. You know, they've taken up more and more of my time. So I've I've ended up putting all my focus really onto onto that. So I don't really shoot so much commercially now, uh, which I don't mind. I mean, I've really enjoyed you know the work which I've done, and it's been a great career. But it's kind of interesting to go back more to my roots, where I'm more taking photographs of landscapes and really enjoying that and getting a passion, you know, building for that as my. Um, photography you know work which i do and then um 
you know, I've got a whole archive of pictures that I can call upon that I shot in the past, portraits I did and stuff. And, uh, and then every now and then I still shoot pictures deliberately, you know, specifically for the, for the books. So there's a nice sort of mixture of work going on there. I, I, I wouldn't really want to be kind of diluting myself too much. I, so I, I feel like I need to really concentrate on the writing more now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's, it's, it's all photography, right? So you're, yes, yeah, you're just, you're just taking or you're exposing different kinds of pixels in this with your, with your landscape work, you know, there, at least a couple of years ago, there was um, this resurgence of, or, or some would say an insurgence of HDR, you know, and, and that kind of, that kind of photography. Where do you fall on that? You know, do you, are you an HDR shooter? Yes, I am. Yeah, I shoot a lot of uh, uh, stuff. If I if I see something which has got a you know a tricky dynamic range, you know that I'm shooting, I, I will always bracket. Um, so I've I've done that for quite a while and collected a lot of those sort of shots together. I've never been completely happy with the uh, HDR processing though. That's always been a problem. So the you know there's been all this material I've been working with and I've been disappointed with what I've been getting out of it. And it's hard to kind of avoid those ugly halos. Mm-hmm. So I've been uh, I was I was very intrigued by it to start off with. I mean I got sort of bitten by the bug initially to try and create that look. And I think within about two photos, I just gave up on it. I just thought this is horrible. So I've, um, you know, I've been pretty much anti the HDR look, you know, that, that kind of thing. And it's interesting when I judged a landscape competition a couple of years ago, that out of the hundreds and hundreds of photographs that were sent through from the preliminary round and the second judging that we were doing, there were no HDR or obvious HDR images left in the pot. Um, they all, got cold by the wayside and it wasn't just me you know there's a lot of us judging and we all made the same decision quite independently that we didn't like that and so um but that doesn't mean to say that the pictures that ended up in the final selection weren't hdr shots because you can process hdr captured images you know really nicely and it's interesting you mentioned that because what's happened more recently is you might be aware with cam uh, with camera roll 7.1 and lightroom 4.1 the uh the opportunities there now to uh take bracketed 32-bit sorry, bracketed images, sorry, bracketed exposures to create a 32-bit master file, save it as a TIFF, and then process it in, say, Lightroom or Camera Raw, but I mainly do do this in Lightroom. You can then process using the latest Process 2012 uh, to to actually process a 32-bit image just as you would process a regular RAW. So what's happened now that's interesting, especially I've actually over the last month or so, I've been going through a lot of photographs I shot from, say, a couple of years ago when I was touring around the Southwest and in America. And I shot a lot of HDR uh, stuff, you know, a lot of bracketed exposures. I've been now actually processing those pictures, whereas previously I was just losing interest because I didn't like the obvious results that I was getting. I'm now creating master 32-bit tips and then just having them pop up in Lightroom and then straight away just editing them as if they were raws. And what's interesting is that if you do push the sliders too much, you can get to see some halos coming in, but generally you don't. And so I've been getting some very nice tame results that don't really look too different from regular raw photos. Um, so I, I've, you know, I'm, there's a whole lot more stuff I've now I can now go through. So uh, I've, I've got a mission at the moment to kind of to um, to get into that all that HDR stuff that I thought was kind of becoming a bit of a waste of time. Now, is that is that technique or, you know, just sort of running through that process going to be included in your next book? Um, yeah, I've, um, I'm trying to remember. I did do some videos. I think I think I recorded some videos. Yeah, I did uh, for the uh, for the Photoshop for Photographers website. Oh, um, good, good, good. Some stuff up there. Um, 
I think that's, I can't remember if that's just done specifically for the readers of the book. You know, if you buy the book, you can get access to the website to get extra content. So I think that might just be on there. I can't remember if I made it publicly accessible or not. So don't quote me on that. I'd have to go and check the website to see. Um, I know I did that for the Lightroom book website. So that is just accessible for people who register the uh, the book. Um, so at least for people who bought the book, they haven't been let down. They can still access and see these latest techniques and there's probably a whole lot of other material information out there on the internet that people can access anyway but it's very straightforward just basically do what you did before just get three or five images that have been bracketed um run them through either photomatics pro or through um merge to hdr pro and photoshop to create the 32-bit file and then don't do anything else with them don't manipulate them in any way just save it as a regular 32-bit tiff file and then you can open it in Camera Raw or in, or in uh, Lightroom and then process using the latest process 2012 just as if it was a regular image. That You don't do anything different except wow. you just have more dynamic range to play with. That's great. Oh, I'll be playing with that after this interview. <laughs> oh, I highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah. You'll be impressed, I promise you. So, so Martin, let's talk a little bit about books. So before we continue, um, just to give those URLs out really quickly to people that may have missed them. So photoshopforphotographers.com is the is the companion site for the Photoshop CS6 book, right? That is, yeah. And uh, and you can, if you've got older, older versions of the book, you can click from there to go and see the websites for the previous versions as well. But yeah, that'll be for the most recent one. And there are some sample uh, movies on there that people can access. Um, I think also if you go to YouTube and you do a search for the uh, Photoshop book and or a search for my name, they have actually released all the videos there as well. So you can actually see all the video you know, content. There's a whole host of videos they can get there for free. And then with the other URL, which is thelightroombook.com, that one takes you through to a PeachBit website where you have to register to say you've got the book. And then you can access all the content uh, or the movie content that's uh, supplied, including those videos I just, just mentioned. So um, those are provided there for readers. I think there's content that you can get without registering as well. Um, but certainly on the Photoshop for Photographers website, there's free stuff there and YouTube as well. You know, a lot of, lot of you know, free to access movies. Well, let's talk about just briefly about the... Um you know, the world of print publishing versus ebook and iBook publishing. Now, you know, looking at this book, it's a, it's a hefty book and I understand why, you know, cause I don't, I don't see how a book like this could easily translate into a digital format, but have you considered moving in that direction and adding interactivity into a book that people can throw on their iPads or on their Android device? Yeah, it would be good to do that. I mean, there are there are ebook versions of these uh, books that are produced. Um, and if I can talk frankly here, I've not really wanted to encourage them too much. I mean, I know that there, you know there are readers who demand and like those formats, and of course, you know, ebook formats work really well for you know many types of books. I haven't done enough research on this to sort of check out what the latest books are looking like. When I last was looking at other uh, software titles as ebooks. You know, my impression is is that when you take a really nicely designed print book format and try and you know produce that in an ebook format, especially with this requirement to, tum- to sometimes uh, dumb down to the you know to, to the Kindle you know uh, format, mm-hmm. I just don't think it really works you know that well. Um, and I, what I have seen that has worked really well has been done by colleagues of mine like uh, Philip Andrews, where he's been working specifically on a book designed for the iPad or for a large tablet device. And there it works really well. I mean, I think that if you're doing something for the tablet, 
you know, and I think it's only really got to be for the tablet. Forget doing, you know, for these little hand readers, you know, it's just a waste of time. But for something like that, a proper color device, uh, I think that, yeah, there's a, there's a big future in that. Um, I don't know how well Philip has been able to make it work for him, but I can certainly see a lot of potential in it. And so I think that it probably calls for like a fresh approach to do something specifically for that format. And then, um, the other thing to get around is e-publishing rules or, pub- or book publishing rules, where at the moment, I think if you're doing an e-book as a version of a print book, because you can't really change anything that's in the print book when they do an update to the program, like you know we just mentioned the 4.1 update for Lightroom, where you can then um, do this, you know, photo- do, do this HDR stuff. Um, it's a, it's a tricky area because you can't update the print book, so therefore you can't. You're not officially allowed to update the ebook. Although, yeah. if it's, you know, you know, it should be feasible. It should be really easy to do. So, if you're supplying uh, an ebook kind of thing through a different channel that doesn't have that sort of um, that restriction, that's you know, or that rule placed upon you, then you know, the neat thing should be that you, you know, is that you should be able to then update those books. So that people can subscribe and get updates, just like you do with apps. You know, you get an app, to app update that allows you to get the latest version with all the modifications. So there is potential to do that. But the whole publishing thing at the moment, I think, with ebooks as version of print books, is kind of sort of tricky to give ebook purchasers really what they want, because you know the potential's there to do something really good. I haven't really got enough into much into that, and and one of the reasons is that you know the print books sell really well. Yeah. I know that's not the same in the publishing industry generally, but you know, as far as things go at the moment, what I do producing print books sells certainly well enough to justify continue doing the same. It doesn't mean it's going to be like that forever, but for the time being, there doesn't seem to be any good reason to really break away from that format whilst there's a huge demand for it. Right. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Right. <laughs> yeah. But keep an eye on the future. Never, never allow you know, yourself to stand still or, or yeah. you know, never say never. I mean, you know, there's, you've always got to keep an open mind about these things. Now, speaking of keeping an eye on the future, um, you've just moved, right? You've just yeah. relocated and, and bought a beautiful new piece of land and you're about to build a brand new Martin Evening Lair out there. <laughs> yes, we we bought this house. I mean, you know, we bought it from this elderly couple and, you know, it's quite it was quite nice actually being able to go along there for the first time, having exchanged the day to be able to see the house, you know, as it is without having to do all the small talk and stuff. And it's quite funny because we were there for about half an hour and suddenly who should we see? The old couple came doddery, you know, tottering up the drive and they came back and so you know it kind of spoiled the moment we had to go and sort of do small talk again and stuff like that I mean, what we really want to do is measure things up and stuff but yeah no, it's, a, it's an old house that um is no an acre plot of land on the edge of a natural forest and so our plan is to, is to knock it down and do a rebuild and build this house of the future um that's the idea but i mean whether we can get planning permission or not to do that we'll have to go and see that's great now will in this house will you have a, a an area for a studio or is this strictly living space only it's it's both yeah i mean well i mean it'll be maybe if i'm lucky i'll be able to go and get a small little shooting space down the basement that would be kind of kind of cool but um uh, it's mainly going to be a living area I don't, need, I don't need too much space to be able to work i just need, need somewhere to go and put my computers and my toys and things like that and uh, have a little off, little office to be able to work from um and and that will be great so um uh, having seen the designs that the architects come up with so far it's it's pretty exciting 
Wow, that's great. I'm looking forward to that. So when when do you uh, when do you break ground and when do you estimate completion? <laughs> well, I mean, if we're lucky, we could do something late spring next year. But um, these things can sometimes drag on for years. So uh, I, I don't want to be precipitous by trying to sort of uh, hope, you know, guess that we're going to get planning permission through. I don't think it's necessarily going to be that easy. So we'll we'll have to go and see what can happen. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Martin, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you, uh, this being the day that you got the keys to the house, (laughs) I'm sure you have a couple of things to take care of. Um, so like painting and decorating and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Like maybe, maybe making the beds up so you can actually have some place to sleep and all that. Um, but let's, um, let's leave the listeners with one tip. If you could give us one, since you are the guy that literally wrote the book on Lightroom, uh, give us give us one of those sort of deep down DNA level tips that that photographers may not have known about, especially if they're just scratching the surface of the software. What would you tell them to do? Oh, it's really hard to say because I mean, uh, you know, my sort of head sort of starts reeling about all the different things that you can actually do in Lightroom and why it's you know useful. I mean, I do advocate people consider um, importing everything into one one catalog. I mm-hmm. you know I think that that's pretty you know there's all the consistent device out there that says that is probably the most effective way to work rather than trying to split up your personal work from your you know from your commercial you know work you know there's very good ways of being able to filter that and i think that um not to kind of dismiss the the power of the metadata and what you can actually do with that how you can actually make use of the metadata that's already you know going to be embedded in your files and how that can help you in searching for your pictures but the value metadata that you can add yourself um, and not to be too, too discouraged by um, talk of the need to put in dozens of keywords on every single image that you put in. I think sometimes even you just put in one or two keywords on everything as you're importing and get into the habit of doing that as a regular discipline when you're importing your photos, it will pay rewards you know, for you later because it's going to make it so much easier for you to uh, handle being able to search for those images because you know, at the moment, I don't know what I'm up to. I'm probably about 130, 140,000 images in my Lightroom catalog at the at the moment, and there are people I know who've got a lot more pictures, you know, than that. And I think everybody's going to find that their catalogs are going to grow and grow and grow all the time. And so, you know, think about the future and where you're going to be going. You know, the, the rate at which we're taking pictures right now, um, just just be aware that you're going to have a huge number of photographs that just aren't going to get any less, you know, and yeah. uh, the more work you can put in at the moment to get into the routine of doing that, you know, it's going to pay dividends in the future. Now, now just to, just to piggyback on that a little bit, the, the whole idea of one catalog, how does that affect performance? Cause a lot of people say, well, you know, if I put all my images in one catalog, then Lightroom will slow to a crawl and which is why I need to split them out into separate, separate catalogs. Is that, is that thing gone now? Is that, that whole problem gone? I, I wouldn't say that the uh, whole sort of catalog issue and the speed issues and Lightroom have been, you know, resolved. I think that is still. I would say that's probably still on, ongoing. That um, you know, people are always going to want things to be faster. But then, mm-hmm. if you start splitting things up into different catalogs, you know, aren't you sort of surely making sort of life harder or slower for yourself? If that means that you then have to start, you know, reloading different catalogs, or trying to remember which catalog it is you've got to load up in order to find the images that you want. You know, whereas Maybe by having a lot of images in there, it's going to slow things up to some extent because, you know, there's more to search through. But, you know, compared to other methods of searching like, you know, Bridge, which, you know, is not Bridge's strength, you know, trying to use it as a cataloging program. You can try to, but, you know, it takes forever to try and search through the metadata on that. There are admittedly other programs, I think, that perhaps, you know, have got, you know, good reputations in that regard in terms of the speed with which their um, cataloging functions work. But I 
don't necessarily think it's really, I found it's really sort of slowed me up that much that I've ever regretted taking the decision to put everything into one. I think it, I think it works very effectively for, for me. Great. Great. All right. Well, that's sage advice. Well, Martin, I will leave it at that. Once again, uh, listeners, if you want to check out Martin or check out the books that we're talking about, um, the uh, the Photoshop book is at photoshopforphotographers.com and the Lightroom book is at thelightroombook.com. Martin, right. Martin, thank you once again. Congratulations on the house and uh, best of luck in 2013, man. Okay. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Always. That was Martin Evening. You can find out more about Martin by visiting his website at martinevening.com or by simply doing a search on amazon.com for the phrase Martin Evening. All right. Before we continue with the show, I want to um, give a thanks to our sponsor for this episode of TWIP. The show is brought to you by audible.com. They're the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. And one book that I'm listening to right now, I almost said reading, but I'm not really reading it. I'm kind of listening to it because it's an audiobook. But it's uh, it's called The $100 Startup by Chris Gillibo. And you spell his last name G-U-I-L-L-E-B-E-A-U. And what's interesting about this book is many of you know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that I'm really sort of uh, half of my brain is photography. The other half is marketing. And the marketing side of my brain leaks into the photography side <laughs> from time to time. Um, and this book kind of straddles both of those because it's, it's kind of one of those books that that I love because they, they do these sort of um, uh, case studies of different people that have been successful with these micro businesses, like one, two person businesses that are just making exponentially more money than they were making in their corporate jobs. And it's just really, really interesting to hear some of the success stories and get enthusiastic about people that are doing this stuff and, and sort of uh, going against the grain. And uh, the title of the book, the title of the book is the $100 startup. So he talks about these small companies that sort of follow the 37 signals rule of not taking investment income. You bootstrap it yourself and, Voila, you have a company that's sort of, you know, it's uh, it's like fusion, you know, it's generating its own replenishing energy source. So definitely give it a listen. Um, once again, that's the $100 startup by Chris Gillibo. And if you want to get that for free for our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to kick the tires and uh, try out the service. And uh, if you want to get that, just head over to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. That's audiblepodcast.com slash twip. Now let's get back to our program. Next up, a very candid interview with Mr. Chris Baldy McCaskill. He's the co-founder and president of Smug Mug. In this interview, Chris opens up about some of the patent troubles that the company is currently dealing with, and we discuss the customer backlash that the company felt after their recent price increase. I'm here with Mr. Chris McCaskill. He's the co-founder and president of Smug Mug. And I've talked to Chris before. I think we did an audio interview a while back when they had a big pricing change. But uh, he's graciously agreed to come on again with me to talk about another pricing change or a tweak to their pricing that they just made, as well as some other things that sort of go behind the scenes at Smug Mug. So, Chris, welcome. Thanks for having me. 
It's a pleasure. It is a pleasure. Where are you at right now? You look like you're in a nice little loungy room in your living room, or that's right. You're and, you're, and, you're, and, you're, you're your man couch there. It looks like yeah, it's pretty much my man cave. <laughs> Very cool. I'm, I'm in my pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's TMI. I didn't need to. Know. <laughs> we don't need to know about that. All right, let's let's dive right in. So, um, let's, so rewind a little bit. Let's let's talk about the the first pricing change that you guys did, which yeah. we interviewed you and I. You were very candid on the interview, and then uh-huh. this week in photo, we went on to publish a, an article that sort of went in depth a little bit. So we're going to wrap all that up in this interview. But that first pricing change yeah. for the folks that you know may not have heard about that, what was that pricing change, and what was the impetus behind it? The very first. Uh well, we introduced Pro Accounts in 2003 at $99 a year. Uh, and then in 2005 or six, we raised it to $150 a year. But our existing subscribers, we kept at 99 And then this time, we raised it to $300. That's a big jump. And our existing subscribers, Pro subscribers, went from 150 to 250 per year. Okay. Okay. Got it. And then on that, before we, we talk about this next level of the change, a lot of the flack that you guys got was because you you and your son Don put out an, put out some videos saying okay this yeah. this is why we did it and all this and one of the things you said in there was we're increasing the prices because of hard disk space prices and yeah. it, storage and all that and a lot yeah. of users cried foul in the comments they said foul uh, so yeah. can you address that and kind of if that, I mean just just address it from the top. Yeah, well, so our um, storage costs are going up around 60% a year, and we're not growing at 60% a year. <laughs> simple and, math. <laughs> yeah, so it's simple math. I think it uh, it caught a lot of users by surprise. It's not intuitive because they go down to the electronic store, and you can buy a one-terabyte USB drive for $99. We've all seen those prices fall like crazy. Yeah. And so Don and I thought the prices were going to fall on storage. I was running around here for seven years. We didn't change prices for seven years saying, oh, storage is going to be free. I mean, it's just going to be, you know, it isn't going to be a major part of our costs, even though it is now. But lo and behold, it didn't work out that way. And looking at the numbers, I think it was so non-intuitive. We were shocked every year looking at the numbers because we didn't expect Nikon to come out with cameras like the D800. Uh, but more importantly than that, cloud storage, which is the storage that's really super redundant where your photos are stored in three different locations around the world and, and they're always online fast and so on, that really hasn't been coming down like that. It, it's, you know, Amazon's prices for storage have just slowly been coming down over the years, not quickly like consumer storage. Okay. Uh, and then we did all kinds of things to make it so uploads were faster, yada, 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 that you know you could sync with Lightroom and people's bandwidth went crazy and everything else. So our storage just went bananas. I mean, a, an event photographer now will shoot 2,000 photos and upload them all, whereas before they would edit them first and choose maybe 250 to upload. Uh, right. But now it's just this huge pipe of stuff coming at us. And then, like the, the like you mentioned, software like Lightroom and increasing bandwidth speeds and all that stuff. So that just sort of lowered the friction towards just okay. pouring all that data in there. And I mean, yeah. And for me, you know, I'd say it's it's kind of a uh, when you look at it, it's like you know why not why not just I'll just start That's using right. SmugMug as my backup. Okay. I'll just upload everything and then I'll choose right. from there instead of choosing on my side. So. That's right. So that if that's what people are doing, that's not the preferred action. Is there any way to 
sort of stop that or retrain people to, hey, you know, why don't you just upload what you really want to SmugMug? Yeah, unfortunately, we've kind of trained them the opposite way because every time we engineer something like a really good plugin for Lightroom, uh, then they do the natural thing and use us more and more for backup. And uh, so, I mean, what we could do is institute some storage caps like every other blue chip brand. I mean, think about Apple, Dropbox, Amazon, Google, anybody who offers storage. None of them offer unlimited like that. That's a blue chip brand that's fairly big. Um, and um, But then we have to give them tools to manage the storage better. And we just didn't have all the level of tools that we really wanted to do that yet. And an awful lot of people are saying they really value unlimited storage, that it was mm-hmm. like one of our number one value propositions. So... Uh, so we chose to raise the price instead of all the tools for managing storage. Maybe in the future, we'll, people are asking for help in, in managing their storage now. So uh, we're, you know, we're going to work on that for the future. So if, if, someone, if someone is saying, hey, I'm going to use SmugMug as, as my cloud storage, since they have this unlimited storage thing, I'm going to take advantage of it. They're not uploading their raw originals, right? They're, these are just JPEGs or high-resolution JPEGs, correct? They're just JPEGs, but the default compression for Lightroom, for example, is not much compression at all. And an mm. awful lot of people are saying, I don't want any compression. You know, it's, compression is one of these things that scares people. You know, the, the labs used to always say, set it at Photoshop JPEG 10, because 12 is three times the size with no perceived, you know, quality improvement. Right. Uh, but now the defaults, because people are afraid of it, you know, they, their files are three times what they used to be because they can, because they have a higher bandwidth and they're just taking the slider and saying no compression. I'm scared of compression. Wow. Okay. All right. Well then let's, let's sort of segue that into the, um, change to the change. This is this, this next level pricing change. So you made some changes to the portfolio level accounts. Um, and you add some, you made some additions to that. Can you talk about, take me through what the different levels are and where the changes are so we can get a clear picture of what happened. So basically, there are two consumer uh, – we have consumer accounts and we have pro accounts. Mm-hmm. There are two consumer accounts and two pro accounts. The two pro accounts are business and portfolio. Uh, and when we originally conceived portfolio, we conceived that it wouldn't have commerce. That's why we called it portfolio. So you could still buy and sell through the labs, but you couldn't have a price list and mark up the photos which involves a lot of extra expenses, submitting a 1099 form and us paying you know, you electronically and giving you all the sales reports. Plus, there's a lot of other features that people typically want, coupons, packages, and so on. There are a lot of effort to engineer. Yeah. And uh, so we just didn't have any form of commerce for profit in the portfolio account. Um, and what, But whereas the business account had all that stuff. So that's the way they work. Okay. So you want me to talk about how to change? Yeah, yeah. Talk about that. So pricing-wise, so if I had a portfolio account before this change and I'm paying X amount and after the change, so like from a from a dollars and cents standpoint, well, how much, what am I getting for value or what would I've had to do before the change in order to get the uh, the ability to sell? Yeah, so before the change, portfolio accounts were $150. And after the change, they're $150 per year. That's not per month, mm-hmm. right? so we don't scare anybody. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but the only difference is we just added the ability to have a price list so that you could sell. Okay. So you Got can it. go 
you know, mark up your eight by tens to ten dollars or whatever you want, and then you can sell, make profit, and we'll pay you and so on. It doesn't have some of the more advanced features that the business account has, like packages and coupons, um, the ability to have multiple price lists. I should be clear on that. It does give you the ability to have as many price lists as you want, but one active at a time. Okay. So, and the reason for doing that is when we were going through the data and looking at the heavy storage users, the heavy storage users are the people who shoot weddings and families and, you know, events and so on. And so they typically have multiple, they have more than one price list. The up and comer independent who, you know, been tugging on our heartstrings with the price change. They're the ones who just have one price list usually, yeah. uh, and they're not using all the extra features or storage, so they're lower cost for us to maintain. Now, is this is was this change based on the most vocal or the most frequent comments that you had on the the first pricing change? In other, in other words, was this a reaction to the squeaky wheel saying, "Hey, we we need pricing"? Yes, uh, <laughs> I think it was emotion more than anything. Uh, we. When we made the first price change, we have a, a lot of customers, and uh, quite a few of them got furious. We had we'd studied the, the uh, price change that Netflix had done, mm-hmm. and the, all the pundits had said, well, the mistake that Netflix made was they didn't contact their customers directly immediately. They heard it from the press, and they mm-hmm. didn't have a video ready immediately. Mm-hmm. So we decided, oh, well, let's learn from them and do those two things, which turned out to be a big mistake. Pundits aren't always right. <laughs> right. And, uh, That's why they're pundits, right? <laughs> because it, it kept us from talking to a lot of our key customers beforehand. You know, Thomas Hawk and Michael Bonacore and all those people, Trey Ratcliffe, who could have been vocal in our defense and would have passed the message along in a reasonable way. But we didn't want to leak because we didn't want people to hear it from someone else. So we contacted them directly. And then, uh, you know, our loyal customers didn't want to wade in with all the anger, you know, so they just held themselves back. They would email us. But So with some of that anger, you know, we, you know, we could have responded, but we wanted to see if it settled down, and it did. But I kept working the help desk, and so did Don and everyone else in the company. And the ones that really moved us were not necessarily the angry ones, but they were students, up-and-coming photographers who we've always served well, who just don't have a lot of money in this economy, and they're not using a lot of resources. They're not using a lot of storage and so on. And, you know, we looked at the numbers. The numbers worked well for us with the price raise. Our prices went up. Mm-hmm. And so we were, I'm sorry, our sales went up. So we were able, you know, to serve our customers better, add more engineers, you know, the whole thing. All that was working as planned. Uh, but the emotion of getting all these emails to the help desk saying, "Ugh, you know, I'm just a student. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm going to sell my prints. Thousands upon thousands of customers saying, I really don't know if I can sell, but I dream of selling. Mm-hmm. I've had a smug luck account for two years and I, I've only sold a print or two, but it was just such a big kick to do it. And I just dream of buying a lens, you know, mm-hmm. or nonprofits, you know, people who are doing something for an independent dance studio or the Boy Scouts or whatever it is. And, you know, we looked at the numbers and we'd say, well, by the numbers, we did the right thing. Um, and then we'd look at these emails and say, but we didn't do this. Part of why we're doing this is we love photography and the community. So yeah. it was an emotional decision more than anything. We're independent. You know, we don't have investors. We're independent. So we could do what we wanted. 
That's great. Well, let's let's talk. Let's. I want to. I want to take that that little vein of why you guys are doing this. So, like the beginnings of Smug Mug, when when you and Don sort of co-founded and sort of had the idea on a on a napkin over coffee that hey, we should we should do this thing. Rewind back to then. Like, how did how did the whole thing start? Well, so Don's napkin over coffee is to just go write code. And he, wrote, <laughs> he wrote code to for about six months uh, to do this online gaming community because he had come out of software companies like it and, and that made Quake and Doom and so on. And he wanted to do an online community for gaming uh, and was really excited about it. And we were going to license the Doom or Quake Three engine from it and everything else for a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And um, and he got me involved, I think, because I had some business experience and I could raise money and I had some money and so on. And he was starting to starve. Uh, and uh, we would go around and we would demo the software and he had a photo gallery piece of the software where you could put game art in there, screen captures of kills and things like that. That's what he was intending. And every, whenever we demoed it, people would say, well, can I upload a photo of my baby? And we'd say, well, why would you want to do that? And well, I want to show you, you know, I want other things in my photo gallery besides screen art. I was like, really? Um, in the meantime, I owned a motorcycle message forum, which is now huge. I think it's one adventure rider. It's one of the largest in the world. And, uh, and there are people who ride around the world and take photos of themselves in front of Mount Cook in New Zealand or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they wanted permanent photo galleries where they could tell their stories. And they want to be able to link them to a forum, which you couldn't do with the photo sharing sites of the day like Shutterfly and so on. So I said, you know, Don, there, there might be a business here where we don't have to license the, the engine. It was 2002 when the venture capitalists thought the Internet was over, that Google was the last play, uh, and they didn't fund gaming companies at the time. So I said, well, you know, we might actually be able to bootstrap it. So we just offered a basic account for $29 a year. You had to have a lot of those accounts to pay for your Wheaties. Yeah. Uh, and we got five subscribers the first month. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was November of 2002. And then in December, of uh, we discovered Google AdWords, and I started to run some AdWords, and we got 13 subscribers. And mm-hmm. Sales doubled month over month. Wow. Yeah, oh, baby. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great chart, even if you don't put numbers on it. Right? <laughs> and then six months later, we were getting something like 16 subscribers a day, and, you know, and it was really going, and people wow. were to like it. Uh, so that's how it started. So where, where was the uh, the Smug Mug? What was the genesis of that name? Oh, it's kind of funny. I was running a company called FatBrain.com, and uh, and it uh, was a bookseller competing with Amazon, but for professional geeks and things like that. And it, believe it or not, it grew out of my garage to 100 million in sales and went public in four years. Jeez! And then got bought by Barnes and Noble, and Barnes and Noble hated the name, so they changed it. <laughs> But the name was electric. In fact, the ad behind me uh, was the golden man that we had. And the ad says, uh, when your IQ is higher than your body weight, you can't always find what you want at the family bookstore. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Phenomenal. Just the name turned out to be phenomenal. It had a lot of attitude. It was distinct, unique, created emotion and so on. Yeah. So we went to a naming firm and they suggested the name Fotolio for SmugMug because they said, you'll never be able to compete with Kodak. It's the golden brand. Don't even think about consumers. You know, th- this is a brand that's been established for a hundred years in America. It's partnered with Disney. You need, you need to go after higher people, you know, who have DSLRs. You're never going to get consumers. Right. So name it something like Fotolio, which is an aspirational brand. 
But Don had his heart set on consumers in those days, and Smug Mug was easy to spell, and it was funny, and he just liked it. Uh, I was a little bit nervous about it. Uh, my wife actually came up with the name just by combining syllables. But then another guy came up with it independently, and Don liked it, so we just named it that, and off off we went. And then the the logo, the smiley face. Well, where was that? Just was that a firm as well, or did you guys just come up with that? I didn't have any graphic designers, <laughs> so Don uh, took a D <laughs> and rotated it. <laughs> a logo. So it's a it's a colon and a D, right? Colon and a D, and worse than that, I shouldn't. Confess, it's in Comic Sans font. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. A little bit, so it's not Comic Sans anymore. But he liked Comic Sans because he liked comic books. Wow. Okay, well, let's let's go from a lighter topic to to a somewhat darker topic. And I hope you'll you'll uh, indulge me on this because we, like I said before, we did this post on this week in photo after our initial interview where we sort of speculated what might really be going on behind the scenes, things that you weren't able to talk about probably for legal reasons. Um, so I want to put you on the spot here a little bit. Um, we know we know publicly that there's a lot of patent trolls out there that are sort of you know doing the doing the uh, piranha thing on these bigger fish and trying to get money out of them on some somewhat questionably nefarious and crazy patents so can you speak to that i mean is that kind of what might be behind some of the pricing issues that you guys are going through and because we i mean some of this stuff is legal so we know what's going on a little bit from a superficial standpoint can you take us a level deeper into what is actually going on and is smug mug being attacked by patent trolls well, that's absolutely behind what's going on. And when I mentioned there were two factors about our price raise, uh, one was storage and another was development costs, it was really hard biting my tongue and listening to our lawyers and saying, you know, you, you can't mention your legal costs. Um, and uh, so now I finally decided, you know what, nothing beats the truth. I'm just going to mention it because it is a huge factor. You speculated on it. A lot of people speculated on it. I'll give you one example. One of the eight firms, I can't use the term patent troll, some courts don't permit it, um, uh, but the, you know, there is this firm, VPS, it's a law firm in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, they've successfully sued a lot of different companies, one used to work for, Pictage, mm-hmm. and Pictage was public about the settlement, which is $3.9 million, well, you know how many customers Pictage has, how do you spread $3.9 million over those customers, plus the time that it took, you know, for a lot of people in discovery and so on. That's just one of the companies. They currently have us in trial in Chicago. We've been in trial with them for I don't know how long. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just become a fact of modern life. It doesn't affect smaller companies. Right. So it didn't affect us for years. But once it starts to happen, you know, it just you get swarmed. So once you, once you get juicy enough and you, you start looking delicious to them, then they swoop in and try to take a bite, right? Once the dollar settlements get significant enough to pay for their legal fees, then the time, then they'll do it. Um, and um, and that's the situation we're in. What kind of numbers are we looking at? Like, what's the real impact on the bottom line for for the things that you can do and versus, for, or in other words, because of this patent stuff that's going on right now, what are you not doing that you would have been doing had this mess not been on your back? Uh, there are a whole number of things. Uh, you know, it's sobering to think. You may think this is just because we're a small company. Um, you know, we have um, uh, 
you know, we're about 110 people and about half of those people work on the website. Um, but our development costs for the website and mobile and, and all that is, uh, you know, it's on the same scale as our legal costs to defend ourselves against these things. Wow. So you could imagine how much more we could do. And, you know, if Don and I and the other engineers weren't working on, you know, the patent stuff, plus there are so many features on the site that we don't do in order to avoid patents. Um, you know, a lot, a, a lot of things people ask for quite frequently, you know, we, you really put on the spot on a forum when someone says, uh, why in the world haven't you done this? And there's, they're angry about it. <laughs> and I can't really say, mm. you know, well, we're in trial over that. Um, mm. I can't do it. What, are you are you able to say some of the things that are like? Uh, I'm sure there's a, a a group of patents that that they're that they they're sitting on. But what are some more obvious ones that people would be like, oh, really? They own a patent for that? Well, so it's public information about VPS and what their patents are. You can look them up and so on. Their patents cover a pro photographer uploading photos. They've sued pro photographers. Their pro photographers uploading photos providing a login for their customers. Wow. Um, and then the customer being able to see a small version of the photo, click on it, get a big version, choose that photo, and go get a print. That's patented. Jeez. So if you do that... That's the know. business right there. <laughs> I mean. yeah. yeah. But it's, uh, you know, we would say, yes, the other people that they've won s- settlements on do do that. We would say, no, we don't do that because, for example, we don't provide a login for visitors. Uh, if you own a SmugMug site, we provide a password for a gallery and we'll make them unlisted. But that password is tied to the gallery, not the visitor. We don't, we don't get login information from visitors. And besides, most of our prints are bought in public galleries, not ones that are, you need a login for and all that stuff. Yeah, but it doesn't really matter. The suit is going on, and now is there? Have you considered an exit strategy? Like I, I'm sure SmugMug will never go away, but have you considered? You know, hey, maybe it's a Facebook acquisition target, or Yahoo, or some, or or Adobe, or something like that. Have you? Is that on the table? Uh, well, for ten almost well, you know, for almost ten years, we've gotten offers to sell the company. And we all always say, oh, no, 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 don't tell us the amount. That'll mess up our stock price. You know, yeah. for, that we can legally give stock to for people who join the company. Um, and it's been all, most of the blue chip companies you can name, uh, and even some you probably wouldn't expect. Like we were in my house right here, uh, and we were only um, five, six employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nokia came hmm. and wanted to buy us. Uh, and they kept visiting and saying, we want to tell you the amount because if you hear the amount, you'll, you'll want to sell to us. And we'd say, no, 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 don't tell us the amount. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll, we, we, we don't want to be sold. So they went and bought another photo sharing company and they paid $90 million. It was a company, I think it was an incline village in California. I don't know whatever happened to it. Nine or 90? Nine O. Okay. Got it. 90 million. Wow. I think that company only had a few people in it. So, um, we've always had opportunities to sell the company wow. that wouldn't make our lawsuits go away. That would, in fact, but they'd be someone else's problem at that point. Right? Somewhat, but you're still involved because the, the lawyers in those companies have to come to you and say, you know, they want to subpoena you or they sure. 
look through your email and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but they would have the money to fund those lawsuits. So, wow. Because we have to not hire engineers and everything else in order to pay for them. So for the foreseeable future, Smug Mug will remain independent. The ship is running, even though it's on... You know, you're using half of the the thrust that you could be using because the other half is going to legal fees and fighting off these trolls that's and that a, sort of thing. That's about right. Okay. It, it isn't in their interest to put you out of business. Yeah. Uh, it's in their interest to collect some money from you, but still have you keep going. It reminds me of the Matrix. It's like you're a yeah. you're 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 a battery, right? They got to keep the battery alive so that they can yeah. continue to extract energy out of it, right? That is it's horrible. It's it's the state of software patents in America. Um, yeah, and uh, there's you know you see many blog posts about it from companies courageous enough to blog about it, <laughs> right? But mostly people just can't talk about it or won't talk about it. Right? So. They're just just frightened and paying up. Yeah, yeah. it's payola. What about? Uh, are, is there any end in sight for this stuff? Or, or are we going to see any reform around patents? Or is it just it is what it is? You know, uh, so. A lot of the bigger companies uh, in the Valley would call me and ask if I would write a letter to Congress and testify uh, about the situation. Um, we were in a very public lawsuit in the Eastern District of Texas at that time, a lot, along with a lot of smaller companies. So I did write a letter. It's public on the net. You can search for it. Um, and uh, you know, now I kind of regret doing it because you don't want to become an enemy of – you know, if, um, you don't want to be in the target, right? You know, yeah. and um, and I did that, and uh, so it's uh, it's a difficult situation because you don't want to be a target, but it, you'd like to see some patent reform. Uh, but if you're going to advocate for patent reform, you're going to be target. So yeah. Wow. All right. Well, you know, we'll check in on you again in a month or so, a couple months, to see where things are going, and hopefully, you know, after the holidays, things will be much better. Well, what happens is you uh, – I mean, these are long-term things. We've been in some of these trials for years. But oh, wow. Okay. The, what happens is you go along as a small company and you think you understand your pricing and everything's going fine until you get this FedEx envelope one day. Um, now I, I just cringe when I see the FedEx logo. You know, Every time somebody walks an envelope down to my desk, I think, oh, no. <laughs> it could be a multimillion-dollar thing you know, that wow. I open up here. Um, and um, – uh, but it doesn't really happen to you until you get to a certain size. And then once you get to that size, so that, so then it becomes this challenge. If you're in the middle, like a company like us, a medium sized company or, you know, even small, you're big enough to track these lawsuits, but you don't have the enormous cash reserves to defend them in the way that you want or time reserves. You don't, we don't have, we have no internal legal department, for example, yeah. we have to deal with law firms. So Wow. Does it maybe it makes sense to get an internal legal department? Have you thought about that? We've been interviewing. Um, they're very expensive to build. Mm. How many engineers don't you want us to hire? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's a balancing act, right? It wow. is, yeah. Jeez. Wow. Wow. Well, then, uh, well, I, I know you, this is a Sunday. I know you probably have things to do yeah. with the family and all that. So what's, uh, what's next on the horizon for Smug Mug? What, what kind of things that we can we look forward to in 2013? You know, we. Um, I, I guess I would make the same noises that Facebook and Twitter would. You know, that mobile is really becoming very important to us. Mm-hmm. Not just that our website really work well with mobile, but also that our uh, you know mobile apps are really great. 
Um, yeah. We have one really great one, Camera Awesome, but it's not really the Smug Mug app. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so obviously we're going to put a lot of emphasis on that. Um, we, um, I think one thing, you know, that's fair enough to observe is you see photo websites come up all the time. Every year there's a lot of new ones. Um, and, uh, you know, some of them survive for quite a number of years, but you wonder what happens to companies like when we first got into the pro photography realm, there were a lot of big competitors that really intimidated us. And we kept wondering whether we should even enter this because when I went to my first PMA show in, I think, 2004, maybe it was 2003, uh, Photo Reflect was there with this enormous booth mm-hmm. and the uniform people and everything else. And I thought, wow, that whew, print room and pictage and, yeah. you know, they're – there were a lot of them, really good ones. And what happened to them over the ages? You know, they just kind of went away. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the issue was they looked good when they came out, but in time they got looking dated. Um, and it's hard to refurbish a website. So one of the things, you know, we're determined to do is, you know, to keep it looking fresh so you can make really beautiful websites on it. That seems to be something that really distinguishes us as you can deeply customize it and make it look very beautiful. Yeah. You'll see a lot more effort in that regard. Um, and um, those are the big emphases. All right. So mobile and just the uh, look and feel of customer websites as well as a Smug Mug website? Mm-hmm. Very cool. All right. We'll keep an eye on that. Chris, thank you once again for uh, for being so gracious. And honestly, thank you for being so forthcoming and open about all this stuff. I know... You know, a lot of it's on the edge of should you talk about it, should you not talk about it, and many CEOs would have just been like, you know what, or you know, presidents would have been like, you know what, uh, we're not going to talk about that, we can't talk about it. Your legal firms, because their legal firms would also don't do it. Um, yeah, they, you know, we had an interesting case study of this. I'll just wrap up with quickly. Sure. We we, we blog about various different pro photographers, and uh, we make screen captures of their site and put them on a blog and. Mm-hmm. We'd always ask permissions and everything else. And somehow over the years, I don't know how, since everybody loved us to do it and they loved the attention, somehow we uh, did that for a photographer, Valerie Schooling, who's very close to us. And we didn't ask her permission. And the way we worded the blog post, it, it, we inadvertently made it look like she was doing something wrong. Uh, mm. And she was upset and her colleagues were upset. And uh, so a lot of our people went and got a law firm because we were – you know, a lot of people were posting about this evil thing we had done that looked like maybe copyright infringement or something like that. Yeah. And the lawyer said, you, you cannot apologize. Um, and it's like, yeah, but <laughs> it's the human thing to do. We really did mess up. We owe her an apology. So I chose at the time, took the risk, and just you know called her and apologized and made a public apology and did it on our blog. And I think that was probably our most read blog post we ever did. And people were shocked. We got something like a thousand comments. Wow. People were shocked saying, you must not have talked to a lawyer before you wrote this. Um, and now she, we're very close. We've always admired her. She's great. Um, we just made a mistake. You know, we got rolled into something stupid, but you know, it's, it is difficult to open up about some of these things. And I've taken a risk here, but you know what? We've always had this mantra, nothing beats the truth. Mm-hmm. It's always treated us well. Even in our price change, we told the truth on the, you know, in the video. Storage costs are huge. I reserved yeah. the truth because I was too afraid to talk about patents. But um, 
but I'm doing it now. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, this is this is awesome. I think I think this will probably get a lot of play because this is this is in a lot of ways unprecedented because I've you know I I do a lot of interviews, but very few of the interviews with with high level executives are this forthcoming and this relaxed and just sort of, Hey, this is what it is, you know, take it or leave it. This is what we're going through. And this is why we're doing what we're doing. So thank you for being so transparent. This is why we've retained ownership of the company is we want to be able to do what we wanted to do. I don't, I don't think there's another company like us in Silicon Valley that is bootstrapped right? That, that I'm aware of. GoPro was, but now they've raised money, you know, to fight off their competitors and everything. So, Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, good stuff. Well, this will, this will be on YouTube soon. And, uh, sir, you enjoy your Sunday. Thanks, Frederick. All right. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. That was Mr. Chris McCaskill, co-founder and president of Smug Mug. You can keep up with everything Smug Mug over at, of course, SmugMug.com. And that brings us to the end of another episode of TWIP. To keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, be sure to check us out at thisweekinphoto.com. And please join our community over on Google+. Love to see you over there. And uh, it's a lively gathering of TWIPers over there. So get over there and upload an image or two and tell us what's on your mind, photographically at least. And finally, if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me over at frederickvan.com. And with that, it's time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn. With technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.